1: As I was reading Ron Edwards' fascinating and far-reaching new book, The Edge of Evolution, Animality, Inhumanity, and Dr. Moreau, I had a flashback. I must have been about seven. I was watching a film adaptation of the H.G. Wells' classic work of science fiction, The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's about a doctor who takes animals and tries to make them human by surgically altering them. I don't remember much about the movie. I think Burt Lancaster played Moreau. But what I remember is that the story really creeped me out. It stayed with me for a long time. And even now, as I remember those half-man, half-beast that populated Dr. Moreau's Island, I'm creeped out. The feeling is something like a primordial shiver. Now, you may attribute that feeling to the sensitivity of a seven-year-old, and that's probably right. What were my parents thinking letting me watch a horror movie at that age? Edwards, however, has a different answer, one based on Wells' original story, It's that these man-beasts that Wells imagines forces us to realize that we are, in our essence, animals. This realization is something that, as a culture and as individuals, we don't like to contemplate. It unnerves us. It creeps us out. And that's what Edwards' book explores. It is, among other things, a case against human exceptionalism. One that asks us not only to rethink our animal cells... But also our relationship to those other creatures who share our animality. Ron Edwards, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, Eric. Thanks for having me here.
1: It's great to have you. And uh, you've got this new book, The Edge of Evolution, Animality, Inhumanity, and Dr. Moreau. And it is fascinating and wide-ranging and uh, surprising in so many different terms. Um And what I realized as I was reading it and as I was reading a little bit about you is you have a background that's very similar to it, uh, surprising and wide-ranging and... Uh, interesting in so many ways. So, Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your history and, and kind of the background that brought you to this book?
0: Well, I I guess I'll start regionally. Uh, I was raised on the west coast of California uh, during a tumultuous time, both for the nation and for my own family. So um, as far as broad ranging is concerned, I, I sort of started that way, uh, the very youngest of a uh, considerable spread of siblings semi siblings and step siblings and uh the the only reason i'll dwell on that is that I had a great deal of contact with the natural world um i I can't describe where I grew up as either rural or urban, but I contacted and dealt with um Animals and forests and oceans constantly. Uh, I came into contact with some people who I later learned were famous uh, naturalists and so on. I, uh, but to me, it was just all coming in all at once. Some of it was constructed and sort of pedagogical. Some of it was very experiential, unexplained in some ways. Uh, some of it was a little challenging. Uh, one. Uh, in, ranging from, you know, encountering dead or dismembered animals, um, on ranches and things like that, like coyotes. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess it was a fairly raw and, and often, um, kind of head expanding encounter, um, as a kid. So that's part of it. Uh, another part is that I was a townie. Where I grew up. uh, And therefore, and that's relevant in that I went to a private school for high school, but was extremely low income. uh, Therefore, often found myself in different worlds uh, across the students I was with and across the cultures I encountered. So I guess finding biology as an interest late in that process. Uh, when it looked as though my interests were very much going to be history, politics, and literature, um, was a bit of a surprise to everybody. Um, but I will say that I continued that. I continued to be a sort of low-income intrusion in higher education. I continued to persist in blending science with literature, history, and politics all the time. Uh, I had read The Island of Dr. Moreau as well as a multitude of other speculative fiction by an early age. Um, I was, uh, continue, I was lucky enough to be exposed to some very aggressive and interesting teaching that probably isn't easy to find anymore, both in high school and in college. Very liberal arts, very analytical, very, uh, uh, provocative. You are expected to interpret and adjust and to question uh throughout. So I found the the only real professional context for continuing to enjoy this was science itself. I even looked into some of the social sciences and other endeavors and really didn't find those academic environments as um well, as a lot of things, but really, I didn't find them as satisfying as the scientific ones, especially basic research in organismal biology. I tried different kinds of research. I tried genetic research. I tried um, uh, behavioral research, um, coming into contact with a wide variety of techniques um, already as an undergraduate. I really found studying organisms far more interesting than studying genes which in the mid 80s was not a very popular position. And so, um, really, I guess you could say I've been knocking around the whole time. It looks linear. You know, look, there's your private high school. There's your, you know, university scholarship. There's your, you know, master's and PhD. There's your being a professor. It looks so linear, but really I feel as though I've been knocking around horizontal moves nearly the entire time. Does I, I, that help a little? It does. And I love
1: the the idea of describing the book, you know, <laughs> If if I was as I was talking to someone and they said what are you reading I would say well I, you know I'm reading this book and it's about biology and, and it's about you know animality and what it means to be an animal and the, and that would be fair to say but I could also say well I'm reading this book about this other book by H. G. Wells The Island of Doctor Moreau and and that seems fair to say and they seem widely desperate. Um, disparate so you know <laughs> then, here, here's this what are you book that a this book that's obsessed
0: with the 19th century
1: I guess you could say that too <laughs> that's right it's a history book about a biology viewpoint that, that's been suppressed but is in the present. So so take us into the book. Um, given that all these oh. descriptions of it are true, what do we encounter in this book? What are we going to do when we crack it open?
0: Well, I guess a part of it is to remain a bit with me by to, to point out that my background included a lot of that research. It also included primary emphasis on teaching with all that history in there, which I never left out of my teaching. And then finally, I was working in animal ethics the whole time. Um, I was either enmeshed in the development of animal ethics and politics through the course of the 80s and 90s and 2000s, or I was on a committee um, about animal care in a really pretty fascinating place. So um, that's what I guess when you crack open the book, what you'll find is an attempt to say, look, we're going to take one idea. What does it mean for humans to be animals? What are the different ways that this sentence is charged for different people? I'm especially interested in not the knee-jerk response, which is, you know, that's terrible, that's crazy, that's against this, it's against that. I'm interested in the response that at first agrees and says, why, yes, of course we're animals, and then you wait for it. But, but this but that, but we can do this, but we can do this, but we achieve that, but we achieve this, but we have the potential. Well, maybe we haven't done it, but we have the potential to do it. And these other creatures don't all sorts of interesting little, buts that people will throw in when you say that and see a response. It's as if they're, they, they feel they have to say yes, but they really don't want to say yes, or they want the word animal to mean something that we are very specifically to them. Not so, I think that's what you'll encounter first in the book. You encounter this challenge that I hope is phrased well enough that uh, I'm not basically calling anyone stupid. In fact, I, I make it very clear that that's not what I'm doing. Instead, I'm saying I look at it this way, I'm real interested in how people look at this differently and I'm really interested in seeing whether you can see what I'm saying. You know, I did that in teaching a lot. I'd say I cannot use the authority that I have. I mean I've been given authority. Say you were a student. I'd say completely fairly, I've been giving this this gross authority to judge you and to have an impact on your future. I I have you paid me to do this, in fact. You've paid me to uh to judge you, to say this is how you did. How come? Because that's what I think. And here's how you did for everybody else to see. And it's going to have an impact on this number that everyone says is so important. Well, I can't ask you, given all that terrible power, I cannot possibly ask you to believe anything I'd say out of the gate, because that's basically what we call in Latin argument ad baculum, believe what I say or I'll hit you. Right. And um if I say, believe what I say because I have this position, or in fact you say, believe what I say because you bought my book and because I have these letters after my name and I'm this, that, and the other or, you know, what have you, and you just have to believe me. There's no logic to that at all. It's a terrible fallacy, and and it, it makes no sense. Instead, I say, look, go with me halfway, then meet me halfway, and then you tell me whether that's possible. We'll go part of the term. We'll go in a, in a class. It's actually pretty quick. I say, look, if I can't get get across, you know, if I can't make sense to you about what I'm after here in a couple weeks, then there's just no point. I'm never going to do it. So come with me a little way. Then you try and see whether I'm, you know, meet me halfway, see what I'm saying, if it makes sense, and then you tell me if we're getting somewhere. And that's the best I can ask of anybody. So that's what I'm asking for anybody who's reading this and says, "Well, humans are animals, but you know, and name your thing—whether it's a hand or a brain or a you know widget or a you know some sense of ecological dominance or any of these things." Then I say, "Look, I'm not trying to make you believe otherwise. Come halfway, meet me halfway, and that's kind of the challenge I lay down. It's not a challenge so much as a, this invitation and." Mm-hmm leaving the reader with freedom. I really tried to write it so that I left the reader with freedom. The only things that I would assert are things that I really thought I had laid the groundwork to be backed up. So does that make sense where I'm at? It does. It the book is very
1: invitational. It's it's come along. Let's think through this. So so let's take the the listeners back to this this invitational moment, right? I can imagine somebody listening and saying, "Well, okay, there's there's this question. What does it mean if people are animals?" And you know, sure, yeah, I had this class in evolutionary biology. Human beings are on the spectrum. You know, the whole truism of chimps are our cousins, that kind of thing. Where do these buts come from? You know, you're interested in this moment where that, that question leads to something deeper and some hesitancies and some perhaps prejudices. So, so tell us a little bit more about that next step, that moment where we start to take the journey and it gets uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> right. Well, the, the, that's actually an extent in the book. That's why I actually begin to reference the island of Dr. Moreau more. Because, you know, H.G. Wells was right in the position to be affected in that, with that question when it was blazing hot, absolutely raw, and he was able to, uh, couch it in literary terms in into an effect that I think is, you know, greater than anything I could do. But here is the, the, the next step, the place where we get uncomfortable with the question. It is when a person Does something absolutely heinous in most people's estimation, Um, particularly when it is violent or uh, when it is um, extremely, when it seems to be unconsidered. We tend to regard to, to speak of that behavior as animalistic. Um, we talk about specific sensation urges, sensation-based urges as animalistic, whether it's lust or extreme hunger. Uh, there's notions that animal behavior is unmodulated. Um, it went on <laughs> for the longest time. Uh, cannibalism and incest were regarded as things that people might do if the animal took over without regard to the extraordinary rarity of exactly these things among non-humans. Um, so the, these are examples of what you might encounter, the discomfort with the notion that uh, perhaps I'm going to say, oh, and there's also the naturalistic discomfort, the idea that maybe I'm going to say that acting like that is the right way, that if that's our animal nature in some kind of positive justification-based way, justifying way. Well, that's you, often what people do with discussions of natural phenomena is they c- quickly twist them into uh, directives. Uh, this is a naturalistic fallacy and it is baked into the 19th century in every possible way. Every political outlook that we have inherited from that time, um, any number of ethical debates we have inherited from that time, All of them are couched in naturalism. If only we can say what humans are naturally supposed to be for, you see, the word naturalistic is often used in a teleological way. If only we know what humans are naturally, then we know what they're for, and then we structure our society to support and reinforce that. You can find that across the entire political spectrum, the most extreme left, the most extreme right, as defined, as those terms were defined 150 years ago. And I think it's incredibly difficult to um, to extract a person from that forcibly. Um, the, the the resistance, especially regarding one's own political viewpoint, again from any position on the spectrum. The the notion, well, even even the word, just to pick one of those points on the spectrum, all right, without prejudice toward it. The word progressive. Think about what that means. Progress. The slang term evolved in that particular subcommunity of politics, meaning a person who has evolved past where the other people in the political um, spectrum happen to be. Um, look at the, the same thing applied to aspects of the uh, political right or conservative, the notion that you have... a um, a meritocracy at work that is somehow an ecology, that somehow the economy is is, is analogous to an ecology in which things settle out and find their place. And if only everybody is, you know, struggling away in it like critters in an ecology, then the ecology will turn into some sort of balanced phenomenon. This is, in fact, I would say, modern day economics or 20th century economics, I should say, 20th century economics is absolutely predicated on that exact notion, all of these things. And so you're really fighting against baked in notions of what humans are as natural phenomena. It's weirdly contradictory. On the one hand, we want us to be this natural phenomenon so that we can build our societies to reinforce it. On the other hand, every time you refer to individual human behavior as animal, it's, it's degrading. And it refers to behaviors that are often psychopathic. So it's a, there's a lot of confusion when you encounter that kind of push me, pull you thinking you got to go slow. You got to say, let's talk one by one, bit by bit. And, and think
1: through it. And And I think one of the things that that's really great about what you've just shared with us is that you're kind of, Knocking off the the dust and the incrustation of so many assumptions on which we're we're basing our views of what it means to be a person or what it means to be political or what it means to be enlightened um, and and so I guess one of the questions that that is very interesting is why do you t- need to take us back to the late nineteenth century to knock the dust yeah. off of that question? Why are we hanging out with with Wells and with Thomas Huxley? I mean what is it about that moment right. that does its work for you?
0: The most important part is that it was the moment when the ideas of Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley, and I single those two out very carefully, not for hagiographic hey, reasons, um, that their thoughts on humans vanished. They vanished from the record. They vanished from the history of biology And uh, they vanished from the other disciplines. In fact, other disciplines that were focused on humans very quickly, very quickly divorced themselves from any discussion of biology and uh, economics, anthropology, any nature, any number of others. Um, And so what were they saying about that is preserved only in that one novel by H.G. Wells, who was a student in Huxley's very last days as a teacher, and in fact attended Huxley's very last lecture, as far as I can tell. The um, important reason for that, aside from talking about this as if these two people were somehow important, the reason that does compel me is that their position— was absolutely fascinating. It was that non-humans have feelings and cognitive lives. And Darwin in particular was very fascinated with very non-human animals. He was interested in the activity of all sorts of different creepy crawlies and how they behaved and, I will say the words, thought and felt. Now, this is often so difficult to argue because in many circles of activism regarding animal care and animal welfare, Huxley and Darwin have checkered histories and in some cases are treated as villainous. Uncovering the precise record of that was, and it's all available, I didn't have to do any original journalism for this. But I had to just keep reading and keep paying attention to what was said and keep looking at citations, seeing where the citations went awry, which is a big skill from doing research. You see where people start to quote things and the source text just doesn't say them. Um, Being able to look at that was very important for me to realize how not only were these thoughts stricken from the record and maintained only in very specific ways. But when they were retained, the idea that non-humans have thoughts and feelings, which was usually couched in terms of animal care and criticism of scientific practice, research practice, when those ideas were, were continued, Darwin and Huxley had been scrubbed off of them. So they were scrubbed of their ideas. And when you refer to the men, and the ideas were scrubbed of the names when you refer to the ideas. So I really, and, and I, I couldn't figure out why on earth was it that so many things just got locked down. The, the relationship of animal care to science, the relationship of um, the, uh, the sciences, specific, specifically the basic sciences, not medicine, not uh, technological uh, the natural sciences, how did those get separated off? And, and why did they remain such, why did they retain such romanticism? Why is it thought that ecologies, uh, well, any number of things, but the idea being that in ecology was this harmonious place or a place of uh, great serenity. Um, I'm talking about that because I'm referencing now how, uh uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, Darwin's contemporary, who rejected the idea that humans were animals, or as some people like to say, just animals. That's, some, that's another word that gets thrown in very quickly. Um, and it's Wallace's views that prevailed. When you read natural selection, when you read about ecologies, you're reading Wallace, not Darwin. When you read about the survival of the fittest, you're reading Spencer, not Darwin. When you read um, any number of other references to what biology is, you, there's surprisingly little Darwin in it. And so I found that it was, there, I, I'd encountered this knot, this knot of ahistorical hiccuping. And it was right then that Wells wrote his novel. Uh, just after Darwin had died and moments after Huxley did or during the last, very few last months of Huxley's life, <clears throat> excuse me, I was able to take a look at this and say, look, this is also where all of our political language comes from. There is almost no political position of my lifetime that doesn't reach back through both world wars and into the generation of the 1880s, roughly. And the, the list is long. I even get alluded to it briefly, in a footnote, and it's kind of terrifying just how much um, America, or rather the United States of America, at that time ceased to be these United States and started to be the United States um, and went on its very first imperial activity toward Hawaii, um, quickly to move into that of the 1890s. Politics rearranged itself very thoroughly in regard to populism. Populism regarding agrarian labor and uh, industrial labor shook out into its present forms exactly during the 1890s. You may be interested to know that prior to that moment, prior to about 1900, evangelical Christian churches across the United States were very split and divided and different in how they addressed evolution. In fact, it was, it was a hot topic among those churches. Many of them embraced evolutionary theory in one fashion or another, sometimes a little distorted, sometimes not. And, they, and so you had this wide array of basically pro-evolution or pro-Darwinian notions across the Christian evangelical agrarian United States. Most people don't know that. At that time, the Anglican Church in England had been the big opponent, not the American churches. In the 1890s, it completely flipped. The massaged and very human-centric, human ascendant view of evolution became imperial education and supported the idea of the noble Brit as the apex of it all. That's very Spencerian. And so, therefore, all of a sudden, the British Empire was very pro-evolution, pro-Darwin, although I will say that neither of those, none of those ideas actually are textually evolutionary or Darwinian. Whereas in the States, in that exact decade, we saw the, the, um, the shrinking and the unifying and the concretizing of views as organized across the evangelical churches, and it was decided that Darwin was out, not in, and so by the time the Fundamentals was published—that's the name of it, by the way—a series of books collectively called the Fundamentals. By the time they were published in 1912, that's it. Even, you know, fundamental—that's where the term fundamentalism comes from. In America, Darwin's out. So, do you see how there's a lot going on in that very bit—the Brown Dog Riots in the uh, in 1905, which I refer to. In the, in London regarding medical research, um, concretized the notion of exactly where the activists were to stand and exactly where the scientists were to stand and exactly what little knot of glaring at each other and what catchphrases were set there. You can read, you can get on any website today about animal rights and all you're going to see is the brown dog riots rhetoric repeated over and over. So it's all right there in a 10 year space.
1: So Ron, this is, this is fascinating. I mean, w- what you're telling us about is, is not just science in some limited sense, but social history and the way that, that science gets used as a kind of deep explanatory metaphor, or worldview to enact social organization, political movement, and, and the way in which these things have, have stuck around. It's, it, it's amazing the, the reach and the, the kind of pervasiveness of it. I, I want to put that against, here's this story of a guy on a boat floating in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> right? So, so what is it about this, this spec, this work of science fiction, speculative fiction that gets published in 1896? Like, what is it that it has to teach us? What is it that if we look back at this novel, um, that's been adapted into so many movies, but we go back to the source. What will we discover there that that we almost can't see anymore for the, the way in which it's been kind of denied and then the, the counter formations that have come up against it have become so pervasive? Like, what's in the novel that we can discover and see afresh?
0: One thing I could point to is those very adaptations you mentioned represent a denial and distortion of the novel themselves. If you had tried to suppress the novel by telling people what it is, when that's not it, you couldn't do a better job. Um, the, okay. So what you find is a person who is first in the protagonist, a person who is first confronted with his own capacity for dreadful behavior. When he almost participates in cannibalism in a survival situation. He is brought into a situation then where he mistakenly believes that human beings are being experimented upon and distorted into non-human shapes. For quite a lot of the book, he thinks that the uh, the beings on this island were human but have been surgically modified to be more dog-like or to be more bestial. Um, and this is upon close contact with them as well. Um, And it's worth so it's worth remembering these aren't creatures with animal heads. These are not anything like you see in the movies where they are very obviously Halloween monstrosities. Um, In most cases, until he is actually forcibly taken into the surgery, he is absolutely convinced that they are human beings. And so is everybody else, like the people on the boat. Uh, On one of the boats early on who encounters one of the beast men, they dislike him intensely, but they all think he's a person. So keep that in mind. He's encountering people that he thinks have been, in his terms, bestialized. Then it flips on him again when he is taken into the surgery, and he finally realizes that it's the other way around, And so it's not, oh, no, look at these horrible monstrosities. Oh, no, humans have been turned into these horrible monstrosities. Oh, animals have been turned into these horrible monstrosities. No, he encounters them as people. And it's well worth remembering that. Um, If anyone were visually actually to try to capture this in comics or film form, it would be awfully boring to the viewer who is, you know, happily expecting great special effects when they see something called the Island of Dr. Moreau, expecting to see all kinds of wicked fangs and everything, and would be a little, you know, a little disappointed to see the plain old people walking around, perhaps with some small differences. So he, um, so anyway, he encounters this, and it completely rocks him. It completely rocks him that he is dealing with Huh. He is dealing with these beings that he cannot deny our people. Prendick stu- struggles terribly against this. He struggles against it with every fiber of his being to continue to uh, demonize them in his mind. Um What's kind of interesting is that uh, Moreau is completely blind to this. Moreau is actually a bit of adult on many levels. He's uh, he, he's brilliant in many ways that involve the prejudices of his day, and he beats Prendick in a debate on those very grounds, as I detail in some – I provide in some detail. But he never sees his creations as anything but abysmal failures. You see, Moreau wants to invent a man, and I mean a man with a big old capital N and a gleaming halo of intellect over his head. He says, free from fear, free from misery. A um, you know, fully rational man. You see what Moreau is trying to make? He's trying to make humans, but he's trying to make humans in their own self-image, what they think they are. Or, as I like to say, Moreau is trying to make a man, but he keeps ending up with completely disappointing, grubby people. <laughs> That's great, For Moreau. You know, there he is, but he never sees it. He calls them failures, and hurries, throws them off. That's another interesting point. <coughs> Excuse me. Another interesting point is that Marone does not enslave them. In the movies, he is often portrayed as a colonial taskmaster, and the, the um, beast people are portrayed very much in a nativist and um, oppressed, downtrodden way. He, he works them as slaves, and they, they fill his house with servants, in their little coats. And none of this is the case in the novel. His assistant has befriended one beast man who seems to have taken on kind of a, almost a kind of British Raj situation as a servant to him. But that is an exception. And that, and and that beast man never comes into contact with Moreau. Um, So Moreau considers all of his creations to be failures because he's not making the great man that he would like them to be. Um, but he also, but it isn't a colonial picture either. There are certain echoes there, but it's definitely not the literal colonialist, colonialist, uh, portrait that it's often, you know, often generated other places. So, uh, there's Prendick and he's suffering away in the grip of he's am, among these beast folk and he knows they are derived from non-humans and it isn't their Various animalities that frighten him, it is their various humanities. And he slides in and out of sympathy for them, back and forth, back and forth. And ultimately, after, oh, and by the way, there's another point in regarding the plot that I, I beat over the head with a stick multiple times in the novel. The Beast Folk don't rebel. That's a movie phenomenon. There is no huge uprising at the end where they swarm over the compound and burn it and execute Moreau and go on this rampage of destruction. Um, and I can only imagine that many times if a person sits down to read the book and has that plot firmly in mind, they must have figured that Wells was just a lousy author and didn't write it very well or something. <laughs> he didn't write because it in Hollywood. <laughs> still, What's the end of the end of Dr. Moreau? Everybody knows the beast folk finally go animal, go berserk, rebel, overrun the place, burn the place, kill Moreau, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Furthermore, as I try to show in the book and the way it's written, I think, is very directed toward this understanding. I don't think I'm projecting it in there that all of the things that Moreau or his assistant or sometimes Prendick think means that a beast folk is as they call it reverting what the beast person actually did is something any human would do very understandable behaviors they just happen to be things that moreau etc don't like and so um the only the when the beast folk do revert eventually long after moreau is dead in fact i'm getting ahead of myself because you see Prendick is the only survivor after a set of disasters the only uh non-experimental survivor after a series of disasters. And he was there with the with Moreau and, and Montgomery and the beast folk in their sort of ordinary life for a couple of months in the story. He then spends almost a year living with the beast folk alone. And what do the beast folk do for almost a year? They set up their farms, they grow vegetables, they say, well, we love the law, but Willow will there be no more house of pain, which, if you think about it, is kind of a you know, kind of an equable reaction to all of this. Um, and they don't fight. They don't prey on each other. Um, and only all at once, at about that very end of that, do they start becoming their original selves again. And there is no huge rampage then either. It's very quiet, a little sad as they lose the capacity for speech and Ultimately, there are all these critters running around. Do they go after Prendick and try to rend him? No. He has a violent interaction with one individual beast person who he has disliked and vice versa the entire time. I make the claim that a careful reading of the novel has three, pro- three protagonists who are not Prendick. One of them is the Puma woman, that Moreau is, a, is surgically altering through the first part of the novel. One of them is Maling, who is the servant character I mentioned of Montgomery, Moreau's assistant, and one of them is this last one who's called the hyena swine, or hyena pig, who is a very formidable creature and, um, as as I argue, almost certainly the most thoughtful member of the entire beast group. Um And not in that kind of childish movie way, you know, father, have you, why did you make me kind of thing? Not that kind of blind, groping, pseudo smart thing. They have characters like that do in movies, but instead, very genuinely sharp, very clear on where he's at and in his actions. Anyway, he and Prendick despise one another for extremely understandable reasons and end up in violent confrontation. But it's actually the heinz diversion that gets him killed. Up until then, he had been able to match wits with Prendick. So it's when he loses the capacity to do that and recognize where the gun is, it's when he gets killed. So what's interesting then from Prendick's point of view, if you look at him living with the beast folk before they revert, he's actually the most violent and annoying and unpredictable member of that whole community. Um, so Prendick goes to these fantastic short-term flip-flops in how he relates to a bunch of people who happen to be animals. He, dealing with a bunch of people who happen to be animals, it does not match his self-image of what a human should be, just like it did not for Moreau, but he's more reflective than Moreau, so he's able to kind of, it, it bothers him, and he flip-flops around on how he relates to it. Finally, he gets off the island. And what do you think? Now, what did I say? After Moreau's death, he just spent almost a year living with a bunch of people who happened to be animals. What do you think he finds when he gets back to London? A bunch of animals who happen to be people. Correct. Exactly right. And he cannot stand it. He absolutely cannot stand it. He cannot face it. That living with the beast folk on the island, not because it was so dangerous and they were going to turn random any second and not because they were so animalistic and couldn't control themselves and not because they were so dumb and kept bumping into posts and grunting and pointing like stereotypical natives in a movie or something like that. No, because all the ordinary things they did were exactly what the beast folk did. And he just could not face it. So to me, what you encounter in that novel is every little gyration of sympathy and antipathy toward that encounter. I even call it Prendick's gaze, especially at the end when he looks at another Homo sapiens person and he sees the animal, not that there is like a monkey or a leopard or anything hidden in there. But he sees that animal. He sees that person, the animal, doing what the person does, reading, working, riding on the train, doing what they do. And as I mentioned at the end of the book, I know that gaze very, very, very well. I have it myself. Many biologists have it particularly those who work with non-humans rather than just petri dishes or something. And in particular, I see it in my students through the course of their time as, uh, as, as their time from not knowing much or thinking they know a lot to a state of inquiry about the natural world, that gaze kicks in. Sometimes I ask them, and they they shudder and say like like how how did you know you know how did you know that i was you know starting to look around and seeing everything completely differently and um and again this is not what people might think when they come across the words human and animal or bestial and humane or any of those terms no they do not think that the people around them are stupid they do not think the people around them are vicious they do not think the people around them are unpredictable or uncontrolled in their behaviors, unmodulated. None of that is what actual non-humans are. And when you can s- settle that into your brain and then look around and then say, so what is the difference? You see the technologies. You see the language. But what do we do with technologies and language? Like, look at what we do. And I don't mean the atrocities either. I'm talking about ordinary usage. And all of a sudden you say, wow, this is the same behavior that we, the organisms, all do. And I think that's, that's really quite a, quite a shock. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about uh, fears and uh, prejudices regarding technology and I spend a lot of time talking about the justifications that we use. Well, we talk, so we we must think differently. Really. We talk, so therefore we think differently. Why? And that is a claim you will find over and over with people who are much more luminous than me in the history of academe. Just take it as read that because we can talk, we must be thinking differently about what we do. We must arrive at what we do differently. And asking the question why is often considered extremely, extremely rude and taboo. Um, And so I think what you encounter in the novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, you will encounter the same gyrations your own mind goes through and those of the people around you go through when this subject is broached and if you don't permit it to be quickly pigeonholed with familiar phrasing and put back in its box. So that's what I think you encounter in that novel.
1: That, that is just, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about the end, about the, the ability to sustain this, this paradigm shift, this view. I mean, so Wells doesn't end his novel on a, on a promising note, right? It's, it's unsustainable to be able to be in London and see the, the animal that is right. the person. And why well, would I ask you about the, the end really- of your book, right? Your book has this wide sweeping um, investigation and exploration, these questions that we're asked to hold. And, and the final note you're asking yourself whether, whether this is sustainable, whether, you know, we won't call it progress because I'll fall right into the the same trap that you've been trying to get us out of. But, but this shift in vision, is it
0: possible? Well, I remain, Ranger Rick enough <laughs> from my upbringing. Um, Camp Unilei enough, which was a radical camp I attended as a kid. Um, I remain in my, my kinder moments of the view that gaining that gaze may have more positive ethical and social effects than simply running around and around the same bush that you know and avoiding it, not really, everybody's avoiding the gaze, and so look where that's got us. On the other hand, let's go to that last lecture of Thomas Huxley. In the last lecture of Thomas Huxley, he criticizes quite a bit of what had been done with evolutionary theory. It's called evolution and ethics from 1893, 1895. And he criticizes the the use of evolutionary theory. He criticizes the notion that it's been used to exalt ourselves over the rest of the natural world. He criticizes the notion that, um, that it's all about this lovely pruning of this great big bush, and you end up with a garden. He suggests that the human is not very happy in... And in, in, in what we think of as an ordered human society in which he says is basically a cage. He's not a natural. He, he's a little bit Edenist about it. Not much where he suggests that creatures not in that situation are at least not troubled the way we are. Uh, he presents a view of the alienated human, which is genuinely terrifying. Um, life according to Huxley at this time is pain. And I don't mean that in a funny way. Princess Brideway, he, he really means it. And, um, and the more so that we li- are now living the way we live. And he uh, suggests that the mind, the human mind and the operations of society and all of its various symbolic rituals, money come to mind and other things, that all of those need be looked at. The way, he he says, well, you know, society and the mind need to start being looked at the way that chemistry has been looked at. And you should know that right at that moment, uh, the periodic table actually had come into existence. He was well aware of that. So the notion that you could actually get somewhere with a long, sustained and contentious study and actually come to what has turned out to be a pretty good conclusion. He's thinking, well, maybe we should do that regarding the society and the mind and Maybe come up with some way, he says, what's the point of all this study if it doesn't help us to live together? That's his question. It's absolutely, that's what he says. I'm not, I'm not paraphrasing. What's the point of all of this understanding of the natural world if it doesn't help us in this global task, this enormous task across all of us of just plain living together? And it's a great question. And he says, well, you know, I've got some high hopes. That's all I have are hopes, just some high hopes that we can do that if we learn more about ourselves. But we have to look at ourselves as what we are, not as this, this mock, this, this, this made up thing that we claim evolution has made of us. This, and he's this rational man, this happy, ordered, rational, spiritual man. Let's. Take a look at what we really are. And he also avoids the notion that we're therefore slobbering, you know, scratching, vicious, you know, hit each other for no reason kind of brutes. He completely rejects that as well. So, okay, what are we? Well, it's been a long time since 1893 and 1895, and we do know a lot more about the human mind and human society we don't know it through analytical work that well, in my opinion, with respect to many of my colleagues. I really don't think those disciplines have gone very far in what I think of as scientific conclusions. I do think that the applied sciences have made a great deal of hay while the sun shone regarding the human mind and society. And by applied sciences, I mean propaganda. I mean surveillance. I mean advertising. I mean um, the leveraging of debt. Um, and a variety and also the leveraging of effort violent effort into group forms all of those are can only be called highly refined technologies the ability to address those things among large groups of people and marshal them toward specific tasks or toward specific ways of life um Whether you call that the answer to Huxley that, well, now that we understand the human life and the human mind better than we did before, now we have helped each other regarding living together, I don't think that's true. I think we've done with the social sciences or the topics of the social sciences exactly what we've done with physics, which is to find ways to make his cage all the more inescapable all the more terrifying, all the more alienating. I am not an Edenist at all. I'm well aware of what creatures uh, outside of a technological society, um, what their lives are like. They may not be completely as wretched as you know as one might think. Poor, poor creatures. But it is pretty wretched, and particularly in the way that one dies. And I think that. Uh, That therefore, you know, you're not going to hear from me. Oh, we need to get back to, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Neanderthal diet. We need to get back to the, you know, the, we have to, to, to go and cast everything free and go, you know, living off without dentists or vaccines anymore. Um, I think that the people who did that are going to have a very interesting time, but it won't last very long. Um, and so I think Huxley was right. There is no going back. There is, and back isn't, you know, a garden. Back isn't the, the, the way of happiness because you know your place in the harmonious ecology. No, it's pretty grim. And here we are out of it to some extent. And guess what? It's pretty grim. So I am, <sighs> here the Californian comes out. I haven't lived there since I was 18. I am bummed, my friend, (laughs) bummed that Huxley's hopes have, in the ensuing 20 years, been so—sorry, 120 years—been so relentlessly dashed, particularly since his hopes were targeting or responding to an extraordinarily well-phrased question. What does it mean for us to be animals— what does the answer mean for the generalized and collective task of living together?
1: Ron, is that, as we come to the end of our time, I want to leave that question hanging in the air for our listeners. <laughs> and I and I do want to say one thing more that I admire about the achievement of your book. I think our conversation and, and your book, it, it does that wonderful thing, at least to my mind, that it not only gets people interested in the book at hand, but it. I think you're going to send people back to Huxley's lecture and to Wells's novel. I sure hope. So. Yeah, I think that's going to happen.
0: I sure well, I hope <laughs> my hope was that about right around the end of chapter one, maybe the middle of chapter two, I want people cursing, dropping my book, running off to go read the very short novel by Wells and then coming back. And at least in a few cases that seems to have happened. Also, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the blog that I did for a while. I included a lot of videos of me teaching to the, to the camera, I'm afraid. And, um, and I address a lot of things about biology that aren't in the book, but create the larger framework of biological understanding that the book was written in. I put it on hiatus after a while. It was pretty exhausting to do without support. So I, um, I'd like to get back to it though. So, there's more of this kind of thing at that blog as well.
1: We will link to it uh, through the New Books Network site. Ron Edwards, thank you for being on the New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much, Eric. Take care.
1: I'm Eric LeMay, and you have been listening to an interview with Ron Edwards, the author of The Edge of Evolution Animality in Humanity and Dr. Moreau on the New Books Network.